Thanks for downloading the Plug the Void podcast. You're listening to episode number three, where we'll be discussing two great books on website usability. Hope you enjoy it. All right, welcome to episode three of Plug the Void. Um, I'm Tim. This is Jonathan. Hello. And uh, this week we're looking at the subject of usability uh, and design, but particularly usability for uh, software applications and websites. Um, so I'm looking at a classic work which um, I came across many years ago, but has just been updated to its third edition, and that's um, Steve Krug's book, uh, Don't Make Me Think. And it's um, a fascinating book with a lot of lessons for, for many di- different disciplines. So what is, uh, what's the book you're looking at, Jonathan? So I'm looking at a book that's um, been around for a little while now called Designing the Obvious, and it's by a guy called Robert Hochman. Robert Hochman, Okay. And he's a, he's a usability guru, right? Yeah, so he's kind of a UI usability guy. Yeah, okay. All right, so, well, I'll start um, with Steve, uh, Steve Krug's book. So he originally uh, brought the first edition of this book out in 2000. So that was pretty, that was pretty early for web usability. Um, there wasn't a lot of discussion about UX around it in 2000, as far as I remember. Well, 2000, I didn't realize it was that old, actually. Yeah, it's that old. Um, so a lot of the lessons that he had, and he had no intention of updating this book, and he, he admits at the beginning of the book that he's not a great writer, and he doesn't enjoy writing. Mm. In fact, he'd rather have root canal surgery than do <laughs> another edition of his book. Um, and he's not prolific in terms of writing. He's only written this book um, and one more, which is a short one about usability testing, um, called uh, Rocket Surgery Made Easy. Um, so he, he doesn't really enjoy the writing process, but he, he brought this out in 2000, and it became a sensational hit uh, and really um, sort of was the, the go-to book for people that were interested in usability for, for websites. And he uh, people get saying to him, look, you know, year after year, it was getting to the point where it's like, okay, a lot of the examples you had in 2000 were outdated. The websites no longer exist or they've changed so much that really the, the examples, you know, don't really work so much. But the advice is still valid. But, you know, when are you going to do another update? And, you know, he really resisted it for a long time. But eventually, after six years, he produced the second edition in 2006. And really not a lot changed. He added um, a couple of chapters that he simply didn't have time to finish properly in the first edition um, and then updated some of the, the examples. So that the 2006 one, the second edition, is the one that I read. Um, and I read it maybe 2007, 2008, something like that. And it had a profound, um, a profound impact for me. Uh, at the time, I was running um, a software development team and it just hit every nail on the head about what we were doing wrong in terms of um, <clears throat> usability and, and not thinking about it in simple terms. We're overcomplicating everything, but we'll come to some of those points. So so anyway, the edition that we're looking at today is um, it came out in 2013, so it's pretty new still. And um, obviously that's a, a seven-year gap between the last one. And uh, the reason why I brought this one out is, um, again, some of the examples were no longer relevant, but also we had this Web 2, 2.0 sort of revolution mm. since then, and it really changed the way um, the web is, you know, how people use the web. And also we had big things like mobile. Mobile, you know, I think in 2006, um, you know, smartphones weren't really a big thing. The iPhone hadn't been released, so it's really, um, it needed a little bit of an update. What was the iPhone? Uh, is it like 2009 then, or...? Uh, it's 2007, oh, I think, was, it? was the, oh, first, okay. the first iPhone. Yeah, I think so. Um, and you think about YouTube, it only been out for one mm. year uh, when he was releasing the second edition. So the web really changed. Um, but what's interesting, I think, about this book is that um, although he's brought out this third edition, the fundamentals are still all there. Mm. And he's reworded a lot of things. So when he mentions, like, in passing, like, different examples about how people use the web, he references things like Facebook a lot more now, oh, okay. whereas yeah. obviously he didn't mention that before. But basically... Um, the core of the book is exactly the same. And he always had the intention um, that this book would be very lean and very simple. Mm. And ideally, you'd be able to get through it cover to cover um, and understand everything and take on board all the lessons on a single plane journey. Yeah. It might be a, a long plane journey, but you know, you'd be done with it by the end. And that was always the goal. And he, he never wanted to get over that. So even though it's a third edition, it's not. it doesn't feel weighty. And he really hasn't added too much um, at all. Uh, and I have to say I enjoyed it a lot um, going back to this. So I hadn't read this for quite a few years, and it's surprising how easy it is to forget the basics of usability uh, when you just don't have those reminders all the time. Um, so it was an interesting refresher for me. So, And it's a book, really, it's not about the complicated stuff. It's all about the small little details that mm. can easily get o- uh, overlooked. So um, anyway, about Steve Krug, he is... Um, 
apart from authoring uh, this book and the other one uh, on uh, uh, usability testing, he uh, he's a he's a consultant. He's a one man band basically, and he's been doing this for I don't know twenty odd years or more now. Um, just people calling him up and saying, "Hey, <laughs> you know, we we've got user adoption issues on our software. Can you just come and take a look and see what might be the problem?" And yeah, he he basically does a lot of testing for them and in, instills like a discipline. Um, and also writes a report and stuff. So there's an interview with him that I watched recently um, whilst reading this book where he talks about how much he really enjoys his job because it's just so easy. <laughs> because finding usability problems, are just it's just so straightforward and it's always the same problems that people make every time as well. So. It's crazy really to think that considering the fir- that when he first released the book that things have improved but there's still so much improvement that can be made. There is and obviously there's more websites than ever before now. Yeah. Um, more applications when you think about the app store on the iphone more more apps than, than imaginable so the room for kind of the room to be brilliant is is enormous yeah, i guess um, new, new design the, challenges everywhere yeah exactly um he talks about things like flat design being um you know a big trend right mm. now but has a lot of problems with it um but we'll come to that so uh, it's a hard book to summarize so obviously we write a, a post a blog post about these books and it's quite hard to summarize that um because Two things. One is the book is very, very visual. So every page has little little visual examples or snippets of websites, and they go hand in hand with the text. So really to get the full value of this book, you do have to sit down and read it. And I also think every single page pretty much has um, a little nugget of useful information, just something small, a little reminder. But And, and really to, to summarize the book, you almost have to verbatim copy the whole thing out. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's a challenge, and I think it's just a great book to read if you're involved in any kind of software development as a designer, as a product manager, um, as a developer, a coder. It, it's just a useful book. So um, let's look at what Steve Krug defines as usability um, to sum it up. So he says, a person of average or even below average ability and experience can figure out how to use the thing to accomplish something without it being more trouble than it's worth. And that's kind of an interesting definition for what usability is, because um, once you get to that point where it's so frustrating to achieve something, like booking a flight, for example, um, then you've really crossed that point of if there's a better way of doing it, I'm going to take the better way. Mm. Uh, and that's that's an interesting definition for me. So, you know, how much trouble is it worth? Um, and he has these three core laws. Uh, so the first sort of quarter of the book is all about the, the fundamentals um, and then he goes into a lot of detail about the different examples and the first law which is basically the most important one of all uh, is the title of the book and that's don't make me think so he says this, this is the overriding principle um, the ultimate tiebreaker when deciding whether a site works or it doesn't if you have room uh, in your head for only one usability rule just make it this one and what he means by this is um you know, don't make me stress um, mentally on asking different questions about what this website does. So if you look at a, a web page, there, there are tons of different things going on. You've got headers, navigation, um, you know, intro text, links everywhere, videos, graphics. And the user has to very quickly, milliseconds, you know, has to make decisions of whether something's relevant or not. Right. So you, you can basically take a screenshot. I did this once um, when I was working as a product manager. I printed out some screens of a, an application and put question mark icons over everything that the user could be questionable about. So, you know, there are kind of menu items that aren't really that clear. It's not really sure what it's going to do. Is it, is it an action? Is it going to perform something? Or is it going to take me somewhere? Um, and users are always faced with these problems. Like, is something a link or is it just underlined? Um, you know, does that is that a button? Does it depress when I click it? Or is it is it just a, an advertisement of some sort? And when you add up all these questions, you know, each one in itself is just, um, you know, a microsecond is nothing. But when you add up all these questions together, you're talking about quite a big cognitive load that the user has to go through. And um, the challenge really as a designer is to just remove as many of these question marks as possible. You're never going to get rid of them all, but just to remove stuff wherever there's a question of like, will the user have to think about this too much? Try and reduce it so they don't have to think about it. And one of the things he said that's critical about users' behavior that we often forget is that users don't read stuff. They don't read cover to cover on, on uh, web pages or, you know, from top left to bottom right. Yeah. They skim. Everything is about skimming. So he, he says that users are a bit like sharks. You know, sharks have to um, keep swimming or they die, basically. And uh-huh. users have to keep surfing or they die. Yeah. You know, he said users just move from web page to web page, from link to link, you know, constantly moving around the web. 
and they don't give pages that much attention. So it's very, very crucial that your site is so simple and so obvious that they don't have to spend much energy, that they get the point of it and they, you know, they're not led down the wrong path and that they can use your website effectively. And on top of all that, they actually enjoy it. So it actually works and it makes sense. So you think about something like Amazon. Amazon's like a really well-designed website. Even if you don't like the way it looks, everything is very honed towards the user behavior yeah. of buying something. Um, you know, you think about the point where you, you make the transaction to actually go through and purchase. Suddenly, all the distractions are gone. You're now on a single page. It's like checkout, basically. And and they're trying to do everything they can to make sure you go through that process and, and complete the purchase. Whereas other websites don't bother to change necessarily their navigation mm. or the surrounding items. And you still have all that distraction when you're trying to purchase. So there are little lessons like that about not making the user think too much. So anyway, that's the first law is don't make me think, the most important one. The second law is it doesn't matter um, how many times I have to click as long as each click is a mindless, unambiguous choice. And this is all part of this skimming thing is that um, it doesn't matter if I have to click three times to get to where I want to be. As long as each one of those clicks doesn't task me too much. It's very, very simple. And there's one example that's kind of contrary to this that I quite like <clears throat> is um, is Dell's website. And I always get frustrated with Dell's website mm. when I go on there because the big choice you have to make to start with is, is it for home or is it for work? So I've got to make a click. And I know that I've got to dive down into the site and look at different models and different specs, but they're immediately immediately asking me a really difficult question that I don't know which one. Um, so if, you know, maybe the laptop I want to buy is for home use, but I want something quite powerful. I want to play games or I want to write some code. So does that mean I need a work laptop or do I need a home one? What does it mean? What's the difference? So, and I'm sure they have a good reason for that, but, you know, as a user, you're making me think hard and, you're especially making me think about the click choices. So where do I go next? And that's um that's a pain. And he he references Herbert Simon, who is um he's kind of like a psychologist, uh, I think is his background. But he's written a lot about behavioral psychology in the workplace and how we we operate. And he talks about this thing called satisficing. And it's a combination of of satisfying and sufficing. It's a mix of those two. And basically, users behave a lot like this. They they basically pick the option that is most sufficient. You know, it's the most easiest one, even though it's maybe not the best option. But they will very quickly satisfy and move on to the next option. And this is what um, the second law is all about: is it's okay to have lots of links and lots of um, sub pages around the site, but you have to you have to make sure those choices are very easy to to um, to make a mistake with, for example. Yeah. I think I think what Dell's website tends to do is they're kind of trying to, they almost force users to follow their process that kind of works for them and makes sense to them internally, but doesn't necessarily make sense to a user. Exactly. I'm sure it makes perfect sense behind the scenes in their supply chain or whatever it yeah. is um, process. But, you know, it's infuriating because every time I look at the Dell website, I have to look at both sites fully because I don't know what I'm missing. Yeah. So I have to go through and read all the specs on the on the laptops on the for home one and all the ones on the one for work, and I still can't figure out what the difference is. Maybe it's just price. I, don't I didn't know, know you were such a Dell fan. <laughs> well, I'm not, but you know, <laughs> I'm often looking around. Um, <laughs> but that's why I don't buy anything from Dell because I can't figure it out. Whereas you think about you think about Apple. Apple don't don't have this distinction. Yeah. You know, are they are they laptops for work or for home? Well, it's for both. It's for people basically. I think. Yeah. Um, and they make it a lot more easy to make that decision, really. So, so um, okay, so that's the second law. Uh, the third law is um, get rid of half the words on each page, then get rid of half of what's left. <laughs> and it sounds a bit extreme. So the first part of that, get rid of half the words on each page, he says that's easy. Almost anybody can do that. You go to any website um, and you're bound to find more text than is really needed to get the message across. Then the second part, getting rid of half of what you have remaining after that, is tricky. And he says he says that because you need to emphasize the kind of being extreme here. You need to really um, challenge yourself to get the text down to a bare minimum. And, you know, the thing he says is most people, first of all, they skim. They don't read um, very much website text. And also text tends to be full of what he calls happy talk. Um, and this is this kind of self congratulation congratulatory like marketing talk where you go to any company website and there's all this blah 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 
um, you know, about what what I do, what I'm great at, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And he said this is this is really happy talk. It doesn't really help me achieve anything. Um, so just reduce as, as much of that as possible. And he says you can always tell happy talk because when you're reading it, your kind of eyes are like wandering a little bit, and you're also hearing this little voice in your head that is saying, you know, blah 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 blah, basically. So he says, you know, reduce that. And then the second thing about text is that instructions must die. If ever you're sitting there writing. Yeah help text yeah. or instructions you really miss the point because nobody ever reads them or you must assume that nobody ever reads yeah. them and your challenge as a designer or developer is to make something self-explanatory that it doesn't need instructions yeah. it's something that cro- that crosses over a, a lot with with the book that i've read um where you know if you if you have to shove a, a big user manual into someone's hand before they can even start using something it, it's just a big turn off it you're not really going to impress your users in that way um, the big big fans of that are the 37 Signals guys who obviously built um, Basecamp, which is a hugely popular product management um, platform. And they are big advocates of you know this kind of less is more and specifically kind of cutting out all that guidance and making it self-explanatory. Mm. Yeah, they're a good example for that. So, I mean, there's a ton of examples in here, and I'll just I'll just go through some of them. But um, you know, the book is, is the book is just packed with nice little things. But um, one section is all about conventions, uh, and he says sometimes designers, in particular. Um, tend to forget about well-known conventions because as a designer you never win an award for copying the best convention Mm. you know you always get awards for doing something new Uh, and he said but you know conventions are really powerful if you think about how much we use them in real life you think about road signs and the color of of road signs and you know markings on the road and safety warning signs you know we have colors for things we have shapes and and um, you know sort of wording for things that that instantly recognize danger or alert Mm. or whatever and the web, the web is full of these as well. And you think about shopping carts, you instantly know what that means on the web, um, even though it's kind of old fashioned, but, you know, it makes sense. Underlined words are a convention that mean links. And sometimes people break that. They, they underline for other reasons or, or whatever. Um, and he said the homepage, um, you think about on any website, the top left um, image is normally there as a link back to the homepage. And really, you should never need to break that because people are so used to it. When people get lost on a web page, uh, that home icon on the top left is like the North Star. You know, it takes them back to the beginning. Um, so there are lots of little conventions like this that are pretty pretty powerful. He also likes something called affordance in in buttons and icons. And this is this has gone away a little bit in recent times, but that's where you could tell that the button was kind of raised. So yeah. implicitly, you know that it means you can press it. It's going to do something. And um, but now we've got flat design, so it kind of challenges that a little bit. Um, and certainly with mobile devices, you don't have that kind of affordance um, effect as well. So uh, a couple of other tricks he talks about is you know visual hierarchies are really important. So always try to um, use headings appropriately and use headings a lot. Headings are extremely useful because they give users like a rest. You know they let people kind of read, start, mm. read, stop, and it just breaks things up. Um, and use them effectively. So have, you know, header ones, header twos, header threes, and structure your page like that. And also break up pages into clearly defined areas. So when you first see a page, you can see, okay, this thing on the right is where the offers are. This thing on the left is the navigation. And try to really define different areas of the page. And also... A critical thing that many people forget is make it obvious what's clickable and what's not. Um, often you see these these kind of images that shout something out and you don't know if it's really, what is it, a link to something or is it just um, kind of a banner or an advertisement or just decoration. Try to always make sure that things that are clickable um, are clearly clickable mm-hmm. and particularly with um, text links as well. Uh, it also says about just keeping the noise down to a dull roar, basically. So a lot of um, marketing people, uh, maybe I've been guilty of this myself at point, uh, points in the past, is that you really want to shout all your different stuff, uh, particularly on the homepage. And he says um, uh, when it, when he sees homepage designs in particular, he feels like the kid out of the sixth sense. Uh, you know, he sees, sta- he sees stakeholders, basically. Um <laughs> You know, and he just thinks, oh, God, OK, I see where this comes from. I've, you know, you've got six different stakeholders here that have all wanted to get their uh, their piece on the homepage. Um, you know, and the homepage is a really tricky thing because it must convey so many pieces that other pages in the site don't have to do. It has to explain what the site hierarchy is mm. as best as possible. It has to provide a search. It needs to provide teaser content. It needs to pr- provide any particular promos that are going on, content promos, feature promos. It needs to provide timely content like, you know, latest news or blog items, whatever. 
Um, it has to have shortcuts. It has to have potential registration options on there. So the homepage is really, and it also has to include the mission and the and the goal of the of the company or the site. So it has to do all these things, um, and it's very difficult to keep that raw, you know, that sound of information down to a bare minimum. It's it's quite. Hard. I think that's probably one of the biggest problems I have with a lot of the clients I work with, and especially nowadays where, when because I do a lot of web design development providing clients with the ability to update and edit the website themselves. One of the common mistakes they make is that they want, they, let's say they have a special offer or they want to tell, tell people about a new service that they're offering. Um, they, they feel that the best way to achieve that is to then maybe put it on the front page in much bigger letters, wording that's anywhere else. And it kind of takes over the entire page and breaks the flow and the consistency and everything else and actually becomes a distraction rather than the fact that what they're trying to achieve. Um, and it's... It's difficult to kind of manage that these days, and I think that the problem is almost getting worse because more and more inexperienced people are, are now able to kind of edit and do things online that they probably weren't able to do previously. Yeah, that's right. And he says there are four questions that you need to ask of um, of a homepage, and and that's what is it? So immediate, and you should be able to answer these immediately. Uh, what is it? What can I do here? What do they have here? And why should I be here and not somewhere else? And that last one, I think, is quite a tricky question. Um, but those are the four things that the homepage needs to to answer very fast. And he also talks about um, you know, because of the rise of social media, so many links take us deep into a website now. It used to be that the only links you'd really get were like the homepage and that'd be your starting point. But now you get links right into second or third level content inside of a website. And the homepage is therefore so important. He, he likens it to like when a diver has been under, underwater for a long time and comes back up to see you know where they are, kind of get their bearings basically before they go back down again. And he says users use the homepage as like that, that kind of guiding point. Mm. It's like if I'm lost, I'll go back yeah. to the homepage. And then the homepage needs to serve that purpose of like, okay, this is this is what we got here. This is kind of the context of the overall site. It gives you that feeling of the depth and the, the structure of the website. Um, pretty important, I think. So he, he references some research that was done, and we'll put a link to this in the, in the show notes. Um, the paper is available on the web. And they tested uh, people's impression of websites with just 50 milliseconds to look at it, basically. So um, a very short period of time. And what they found is that people's first impression um, was actually, well, there's two things. First of all, it was correct. So within 50 milliseconds, they had like an instant good impression of what the website is. But secondly, he said, even if it wasn't, they still stuck with that impression anyway. So whatever they thought a website was, they were kind of, behave as if that's what it was anyway so it's quite hard to undo a person's first impression of a particular web page so if you think um, a particular web page is all about marketing and it's not very valuable then even if it turns out not to be the case and it's quite a valuable website that first impression is very hard to get rid of and the user still believes that that is the case um, so it's quite an interesting thing so he said you know snap judgments are so important that's why you've got to be able to answer those questions immediately from from what you're seeing on the home page mm. um, and he also has something called the trunk test um, and this applies to any any page on the site. And he says, you know, go away and try this, right? So pick any web page, uh, any any page on your site at random, and then ask yourself these six questions. And you need to immediately answer them. Yeah. And if you can't immediately answer them, then there's work to be done. And the first one is, what site is this? So the site ID. You know, where where is the positioning? What where am I? What is this place? Um, oh, and it's called the trunk test, by the way, because. He um, he says it's a bit like uh, in gangster movies when they throw somebody in the trunk of the car <laughs> and then they drive them around and then let them out somewhere. They have no idea where they are and they're kind of lost. And it's a bit like that. You appear on a website, on a page um, deep into the into the hierarchy of the website, and you've got to quickly kind of get your bearings. Like, where am I? What is this? So so what is this? what site is this? What page am I on? And he said that's such a simple one, but so many people forget to even mention the page that you're on in the website. Uh, clearly at the top, you know, like as a heading, for example. Um, what are the major sections of this site? Um, what are my options at this level is in local navigation? And where am I in the scheme of things? So some kind of like you are here indicator, basically. Mm. Uh, and then finally, how can I search? And he just says that's so important because kind of there are two types of users, those that search and those that navigate. But even the people that navigate will end up searching if they can't find it. So search is just so critical um, for for web uh, usability so um so to cut to probably the most important point of the whole book he um 
he says that you user testing is the single most important thing you can do to improve the quality of your site. So if you want a great site, you've got to test. And you know, testing one user is a hundred percent better than testing mm. none. So a lot of people are afraid that usability testing costs a lot of money. It's a lot of organization. You know, who do I ask? Where do I do it? Do I need cameras? And he breaks it all down into very simple processes and says, look, you can do this very very cheaply. Mm. You know, for a hundred hundred bucks, you can get this done. And uh, testing one user early in a project is better than testing 50 yeah. at the end. Yeah, so catching those problems early on will save you a huge amount of time. And he says that really you should make it a regular part of um, the schedule. So every month, pick a, a Thursday, for example, one day in the month that is um, set aside just for testing. Get two or three people in. That's all you need. Um, pay them a little bit of money, cover their costs, and then um, set them up on a computer and record them you know, via um, WebEx or GoToMeeting and have the rest of the team in a separate room watching and then have a script. And he, he gives an example of a whole script in the book um, that you can follow, yeah. and there's more on his website as well. And you ask basic questions, you know, ask them to do something, conduct some kind of... Um, test on the website and then just watch and see what happens and he says you know it's really um it's like an enlightening experience particularly for the this the more senior people like the managers who if you can get them to just watch for half an hour in the room they will learn so much mm. it's like a transformative experience you don't realize how idiosyncratic users can be and how uh different they are to what you what you expect or what you think you would do um, so it's a huge thing. And I still think, in my experience, usability testing or user testing is still really underappreciated. Yeah, um, I still don't see – I don't see many people doing it religiously like this every month, you know, making sure they're doing it. And I think it makes a huge difference. I, I don't think testing is done on – even just outside of technology, I think testing isn't done enough anyway, regardless whether it's, you know, you're doing a, a speech or a presentation or – anything really i don't think people get enough feedback before they actually launch things um and it just can make you can make massive improvements off the back of that if you do it properly yeah absolutely and was it was, but sorry one other thing was it um steve Crook who came up with the corridor test or was that in another book did he reference that at all uh i know what you mean because i've read that but i don't it's not in uh, this version it's just a very sort of again a very cheap way of of getting just some feedback on, on what you're doing and it's essentially the corridor test just literally means what it, what it is which is that you you bump into someone who doesn't know what you've been working on in the office block essentially in the corridor and you ask them to come and have a look at something and, and get some initial feedback and that as Steve Crow said is far more powerful than nobody looking at it at all so even if you can only do that that's a big step forward yeah absolutely that's right um, and he talks about some people overcomplicate, like who should be the, the candidate, you know, trying to find the ideal profile of the person. He said, just, just don't worry about it. There, there is actually some stuff he references that you can look up online um, from people he knows that explain how to get a good profile. But he said, ultimately, it just doesn't matter. Just get anyone random because mm. they will tell you something you probably don't yeah. already know. Uh, so, so a couple of extra things. So one of the new chapters in this book is all about mobile. And the interesting thing is, it really, he starts off by saying, so what, what is there to learn about mobile? What's new? What's different that's not already covered in the book? And really not a lot. Basically, all the same principles apply. There's a couple of specific things that I thought were worth mentioning. And, and one is that you should always allow for zooming on a mobile. So sometimes you, um, uh, you fix the size or the ratio or the font size, and you should always allow um, users to kind of zoom in or out. Um, because sometimes they do want to kind of um, see the whole site and want to navigate in the classic way. And a lot of people um, design these uh, mobile-specific versions yeah. and then lock users yeah. in. So you actually can't, even though you want to, you can't get to the main site. And that's a really bad practice. He said you should always have a link at the yeah. bottom that says use the full site um, because a lot of people are happy with that. They just want the options you know, mm. that they normally have. Um, and he said one of the uh, strange things is that people um, – People tended to think when they were designing mobile applications about they, – they thought, okay, what are the things people want to do whilst they're mobile and then only give them those options basically. And he said that was really flawed because what you find is actually people use their mobile devices even when they're stationary, when they're sitting at their desk or on, on the couch watching TV. So really people want all the options that they have um, on the desktop as well. Uh, but they just need to be a couple of changes. One is you need to make the most frequent things really close to hand. And you need to always make sure you can get to any option, um, you know, one way or another. It just might take a few more clicks or a few more scrolls. And scrolling is totally okay on a mobile device. Um, really, there's not a huge amount um, uh, different. He says speed, obviously, is a big thing. You know, be conscious of having images. He gives an example of um, 
AP News. So he uses the the app for AP News, and he really likes it because the alerts that come through are really helpful. So if there's breaking news, he gets an alert on his mobile. But he says it's such a pain. You click through, and then every um, news item has massive images at the top. And obviously, if he's on like you know a slow connection on his mobile, it's a real pain because it starts loading all the images first, and you know it takes forever, and then messes up the the, the screens bouncing around. Um, so he says what he does is he still uses the app for the alerts, but then he'll go off, um, he'll click cancel and go off and find the same news story on Google News, for example. Um, so that's really a bad usability thing. And I think he talks about CBS News as well, maybe, um, where they have an app for alerts. But when you click through, they paginate all of the news items. Uh, so they have a big image at the top and then, you know, part one of the news, and you have to click you know, part two, and then they load the same image again. So it has to reload it all over again, and they click page three in the same image. And that's just a really bad experience when you're mobile. You don't, you don't want that. You just want the text, and you want to be able to scroll uh, and, and get through it quickly. Um, so he talks about mobile being very competitive because obviously there are so many um, apps in the App Store that you need to be able to make something delightful. So it's got to have that extra bit of wow to be competitive. It also has to be learnable really fast. So you need to make sure your application guides people very quickly to the most important features so they learn them. And it also has to be memorable. And that's a key thing. Um, if every time you come back to the app, you, you've forgotten how to do the critical things. Uh, and he gives an example of um, a particular drawing app where every time he comes back to it, he loves the app, but every time he's there, he can't remember how to create a new project. And it sounds like so simple, but he just can't find the option. He's kind of, you know, always stuck in previous work that he's done. There's, just, there's no clear option to start afresh. So uh, he just finds that really annoying. Like, make sure it's memorable so that every time I use the app, it's like, okay, I don't have to go over that learning curve again. He said there's a particular problem with, um, with mobile apps. So, uh, And he talks about how easy it is to do mobile user testing as well. He gives... um. A DIY example that you can make for $30 where you get a little um, camera that you can put on the end of a, a little stick so it kind of watches the user as they're holding their mobile uh, and you can kind of record that and see okay what were they doing what were they clicking on and he said you learn a huge amount from that um, so that's good so there, there's one part at the end which I really like which is um, he, he talks about usability is like it's basically common courtesy it's uh it's doing the right thing for users, being courteous. And he says, users come to a website with a reservoir of goodwill, okay? And that can be affected by the mood that they're in or the kind of person they are. But basically, they have a reservoir of goodwill. It might be a lot of goodwill, it might not be a lot. But you have to be careful not to decrease that goodwill and try your best to increase that goodwill. And one example he gives is like an airline. Um, the airlines often have strikes, okay? So he was waiting at an airport one day uh, on this particular airline and strikes were announced and there was no information no one was telling him anything so where do you go the first place you go of course is online you go to the airline homepage and what do you expect to find you expect to find an update right that says okay we we have a strike today you know we're working on it uh, this is what's happening flights being delayed here here and here uh, here's more information so you would expect to find that somewhere and there was nothing um, he clicked through looked around the website found an FAQ site uh, page and none of the questions related to the strike. And he just says, look, that's really hurting my goodwill. You know, just give me something. You know there's a strike. So why can't you just update the homepage where you know everybody is going to be looking at this particular time? Um, and you're decreasing my goodwill. So things that decrease um, a user's goodwill are hiding information that, that you need. Um, like customer support phone numbers is a classic yeah. one. They always hide those really deep in a website. You know, shipping rates. How much does it cost to get things delivered? You know, and, and general pricing. Sometimes that stuff is hidden um, quite deep. Uh, punishing the user for not doing things your way. So you should never have to think about formatting data or like the format you want my credit card in or the format you want my date of birth in. Yeah. <laughs> you know, get, make it so that I don't have to think about those things. You know, structure it in a good way. Um, you know, dashes in secu social security numbers, for example, uh, and parentheses in phone numbers. So don't make it hard for the user. All of those things decrease the goodwill. Also, asking me for more information than you really need. And I think when you get a form with all these questions, you know, asking a lot of details, it's like, why do you need that? And it starts to raise questions. You become a skeptical user then. Why are they asking me all these things? Um, also, being disingenuous. You know, he talks about the, the classic when you're on hold and it says your call is important to us. You know, it's just disingenuous. You know, that's not true. You know, don't lie mm. to me. And of course, that he calls it shucking and jiving, whatever that means, but um, being disingenuous. So uh, putting sizzle in the way. So if there's too much marketing fluff in the way of getting something done, mm. 
Um, that's just a decreasing goodwill. And also if the site looks amateurish, or if it looks sloppy, disorganized, or unprofessional, then immediately you start to feel a little bit um, off guard. But things you can do on the positive side to increase goodwill, uh, know the main things that people want to do on your site and make them obvious and easy. Um, tell me tell me what I want to know. So put important information right up front, shipping costs, you know, daily parking fees at the hotel, make it all transparent. Then, okay, it might be expensive, but at least um, I trust you, you're putting information up front. That's very helpful. Um, save, save the user steps wherever you possibly can. Um, so, you know, one example was instead of emailing a confirmation of the shipping company's tracking number, just simply put a link straight into the email that sends me straight to the page where I can see the latest tracking. And I think Amazon was one of the first companies to do that quite a few years ago now. But um, that, that really helps because then you don't have to cut and paste the tracking number, go and look for the, the shipping company's website, find the right place, put in the number and then, click, you know, you can just save clicks um, like that quite easily for the user. Put effort into it. So um, just simply make make the whole customer experience or user experience uh, as best you can. Really think about the detail that the user is going to go through. Uh, know what questions a user is likely to have and try to answer them up front. So, although it's not instructions, but things like FAQs can be enormously helpful, um, especially if they're not kind of marketing uh, pitches masquerading as FAQs. If they genuinely are like, okay, these are the things customers ask us most, uh, and we're just going to give you straight answers to them. And I think that's quite helpful. I think one is like at, at hotels, you know, what is the parking cost? Mm. Um, that's kind of a classic one that is never upfront. So, um, you know, one thing he says that's really could be really great is if you get your customer support team to list the top five issues of the week, right? And then put them on the website. Why not? Why does it hurt? So, you know, ask your, your, your call center, like, okay, what are the big things that people have been calling about this week? How can we answer those up front and make them more transparent to users? I, I think that's really great. And he says, just be candid and honest as much as possible. Mm. Um, provide me with creature comforts like printer-friendly pages. Uh, you know, so obviously tricks with CSS make it so easy so that when, when I do control P, um, you know, you can give me a different CSS page that's going to strip out all the all the crap on the web page and just give me a nicely formatted text. Um, a lot of people do that, to be fair. Um, that's quite helpful. Uh, also, make it um, easy to recover from errors. So, you know, if an error does come up, just give the user a graceful way to kind of back out on the changes or go back to a safe place um, where they were before in the process. So, and then finally, um, when in doubt, always apologize. So, if uh, if you can't do what the user wants, just say so and say sorry. You know, uh, this feature is not available at the moment. So, um, he gives an example of these university libraries that had all these different um, catalogs where you needed a different password and username for every catalog, and they just said up front, look, I know this is a real pain. Mm. I wish we could solve it, but we're bound by this. Every yeah. department has their own, you know, database for this. And we're just really sorry. And he said, look, you know, that kind of goes a long way to the frustration because then people understand the reason why it's like that. And maybe they even feel a bit sorry for you. So they kind of, they get it. So um, finally, there's also a whole section at the end, which I won't talk about, but about accessibility. And it is a really important section because the things you can do as a developer on day one to make accessibility really easy you know, for screen readers and impaired users, it, it's so it's so worth thinking about um, before you start designing um, and, and building. Just to think about those right. things because you can save yourself a huge amount of time uh, by including that up front. So, so anyway, that's that's um, a kind of whirlwind tour of the book. And I would really, you know, when I was thinking, would I recommend who would I recommend this to? And I think anybody that has anything to do with applications, you know, whether you're a project manager or a product manager or a, um, you know, owner of the product or the de designer, the developer. This book is so short and so crisp. It's just worth mm. reading because it gives you great reminders um, to think about for your uh, your product. So, yeah, you, have you read this as well? Yeah, I think I must have read the second edition, maybe. I, I think the, the, the thing I like about it most is that you don't have to be a really experienced, you know, user interface or usability expert to to carry out a lot of the things he suggested. It's actually a lot of it is common sense and a lot of it is just the time that you, you need to put into it to get it done. Yeah, and actually the tagline on the book is um, uh, a common sense approach to web usability. Mm. And it is all, it's just a book of common sense, which is um, which is quite good, yeah. really. It's refreshing. So, okay, so that's um, that's Steve Krug. So tell me about your book. Yeah, so I mean, the, the sort of common sense theme leads on quite nicely to, to my book, Designing the Obvious. Um, I, I get the feeling, bear in mind that this book was published in 2007, so quite a bit after the original um, Don't Make Me Think version. I get the feeling that he's used, or sort of not um, 
use it directly, but he's he's obviously referencing or taking a lot of that into account when he's put this together. Um, so the book was published in 2007, which is obviously you know seven, eight years ago. But like Don't Make Me Think, a lot of the core principles are still very much relevant and, and they haven't really changed. Um, the the author, a guy called Robert Hoekman, um, he is he's essentially a UX strategist, a, a user experience guy. Um, you know, very in, into user interface stuff. Uh, I think he did, He previously worked with uh, companies like Adobe. He worked on um, Squidoo, which was one of Seth Godin's products. Um, and he also worked on MySpace, which is, is probably something that a lot of people know. Um, he does a lot of speaking these days. I think he's probably similar to Steve Krug in that he has a pretty good job. He does, does things that he's very passionate about. Um, so he's able to go around, provide his you know, consultancy and expertise to, to companies. And obviously, as we know, that there's, there's clearly a lot of work out there for that. Um, I think he's, he's definitely worth having a look at if you're, if you're sort of a, a designer or a user interface guy. Um, you can find more of him over at www.rhjr.net. Um, I think the... In terms of the, the sort of purpose of this book, it, it is tailored towards um, web application design, really. He, he does focus quite specifically on, on things that happen within a, a web application and, and software in general. Um, but that doesn't mean that you can't take certain pieces of this and apply this you know, and apply it more generally. To, to sort of sum up the direction of the book, um, an early snippet from the book reads... The goal of every web-based software company should be to design applications that are so intuitive that people using them attribute their ability to use them effectively to pure common sense. So again, in the similar lines of, of Don't Make Me Think, he's, he has this concept that software just should be so obvious to use. You, know, you, you don't need a manual to start using something. You can just get up and running very quickly um, without all the kind of nonsense of having to you know, try and understand what the hell's going on. Yeah, and I have to say, it feels like um, it's kind of weird talking about this in 2015 because it feels like we don't we we've reached a point where that's accepted now. Whereas I remember, you know, 10 years ago where it really wasn't, mm. and you know, people were talking about making, you know, adding more features, making it more complex, yeah. and people need to learn because it's a business tool or it's a powerful tool. And I think um, I think maybe we have a lot to thank Apple for in this sense that really they were the company that blazed the trail that said, you know, high usability is actually highly profitable. So the more accessible, the, the more enjoyable you make um, a product or, you know, a software application, the more people are going to use it, the more people are going to spend money mm. on your company, basically. So I don't know what you think. Of it. Does he mention Apple at all? Uh, he does. I mean, I, just on that point, I mean, they really were, Apple were really flying the flag for the concept of less is more, which is a huge part of this book, you know, this idea that you need you need far less in your application to actually make it effective, whereas it's, it's kind of still today people think that they need to be building more features to make it more appealing. Um, he, yeah. There are references to Apple in the book, but I think because this was in 2007, it's still kind of fairly early on. I mean, if you think the real push, I think, from Apple is was probably after... Uh, the iPhone and the and the iPads came out. That's when people they really started to pick up huge momentum um, because their their user base grew so um, in such a, a short space of time. Yeah, I think so. I mean, Apple's always even since the late eighties always had a, a focus on that usability, but it yeah, never really yeah. reached the huge mainstream until exactly, I think yeah. the iPhone and, and iPad, like you say, yeah, were huge. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So again, the book's very much he, he's trying to instill this idea that we need to to um, build things around common sense and make it make things intuitive and what he does is he essentially uh, bases the book around a number of goals that, that we kind of need to work towards um, and then within each of those goals he provides various sort of techniques and, and processes that we can apply um, to ensure that we can to, to reach those goals now the book is is obviously quite detailed but i've picked out some of the, the key goals that i think are, are worth you know a little more discussion um, one of them is that software should only have features that are absolutely essential for users to complete the, the activity the application is meant to support. So again, I mentioned them earlier, the 37 Signals guys are, are big advocates of this. Um, there's a common problem where designers and developers just keep creating more stuff, you know, more features, more functionality, and making more things more complex. And actually, their intentions are, are, are good. They're trying to do something that 
might make things better for the users. But unfortunately, what it tends to do is actually distract users from the core functionality of the application. Um, and so Hopeman, we'll talk about some techniques that, that Hopeman uses to kind of wean out those, those essential features. Um, another goal he talks about is that we need to be helping users to get started quickly so that they can become intermediate users as soon as possible. And basically, the point is that most people use software for a reason. They're not generally using it for fun. And so what they'll do is they'll actually only ever really advance to a level that, that they need to in order to get the task done um, you know, for their job or whatever it is. Um, and, and Microsoft Word is, is probably a good example of this. You know, most people are intermediate, intermediate users of Microsoft Word. Um, you know, they don't know how to create macros or create you know, custom auto correct rules, but they know how to do the basics in order to get the job done. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. And then another goal is um, similar to what Steve Crew talked about, is, is making it easy to recover from mistakes and even more difficult to make them in the first place. Now, this is probably something everybody has, has experienced at some point when, if they've ever used Windows or an older version of, of Microsoft Windows. And that's the classic, an error has occurred. Um, and I think you had the option of kind of ignore or cancel, um, which doesn't help anyone. Um, so those, that's like the, you know, a worst case scenario. But the point is, is that we need to be helpful in, in, in um, getting users through potential problems or you know, helpful in guarding users against doing silly things. Yeah, I mean, the, the classic is, uh, I always remember, maybe they've gone away now, but people used to put error messages with the error number, the error yeah, code. Yeah, yeah. And it was like, what do you expect a normal user to do with that? What are they going to do with the error code, you know, 49713, you know, null pointer exception? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Something that was obviously very helpful to the developers, but it just it just had nothing right. to, to a normal user. Um, and, and the problem with those is that it it's interrupting you know users workflow and um you know these pop-ups etc are stopping them from doing what they actually need to do so so we need to avoid that kind of stuff another goal that he he talks about is is this sort of consistency and uniformly design um that we need to uniformly design interface elements and this is this is a lot to do with consistency um and it's got it's, it's definitely got better and i think it's improved significantly even since this book's been around but you know, users are used, like as you mentioned, there's certain conventions that users are, are used to. And so if we constantly change that and, and make things, make the navigation or make the, the flow inconsistent, it becomes much harder for a user to use applications or websites uh, effectively. And, you know, things like visual hierarchy, structure, flow of pages, these are all really simple things that can make a big difference. And then the final section, which is, is worth the final goal, which is worth a, a talking a little bit about is uh, basically reducing refinement um, and this is the idea that just interfaces in general are, are cluttered um, and what we really need to do is is hide away the complexity so that users can do the core task you know efficiently but also make that complexity or make those deeper uh, pieces of functionality available when when they're needed um, and there's ways we can do this but essentially by um, iterating our designs rather than trying to do everything in one big chunk um, can help help sort of refine everything. Mm. Um, you know, and, and Google, Google search has, has always done a, a sort of great job of um, keeping things sort of concise and, and refined. And I think that they would always be a good example of, of a company that have focused purely on the, the core task at hand and not try to distract users with lots of other things going on like, like Yahoo did. That's true. I think a big benefit we have nowadays is that most application software is now on the web, which means that you don't have to install it. So that means updates can come much more frequently. So if there are usability problems, they can get solved quite quickly. Whereas if you think 10 years ago, five years ago, maybe, you know, people are still using office tools mm. so much and you get those things installed once and then maybe get them upgraded in 18 months yeah. or something. Or, you know, I'm, I've got a problem in Outlook that drives me nuts and it just, it's ridiculous. So often I get attachments all day on my emails, right? And I want to save them because I want to get them out of my email, delete the email, whatever, and then have the attachments um, useful later. So there's an option that says save all attachments, right? So I click save all attachments and then it pops up a window, a really old fashioned little dialogue with all the attachments. And it says, which attachments do you want to save? I'm like, hold on a minute. I just clicked the option that said all attachments. Now you're asking me, to, you know, and then I have to go through and do that again. So it's just, and the thing is, it's like, okay, why are you moaning? It's one extra click or whatever. Mm. But yeah, when I do it five, yeah, ten yeah. times a day, I get really pissed off with you. And uh, it's just things like that. Very irritating. Yeah, absolutely. And so... 
with these kind of goals in mind, the, the, the rest of the book is is built around those, and I've, I've missed out a few of them, which he, he goes into some more detail about, specifically about things like users, but I've left those aside just because I think that they are, they're a little bit sort of more um, tailored towards, you know, sort of user interface design and things like that, and, and I want to keep it fairly, fairly broad in general. Um, but so... The, the next piece I'm going to talk about is, is kind of some of the techniques that he talks about that will help you achieve the, these different goals. Going back to, to one of his sort of initial um, goals in terms of only building what's absolutely essential or necessary, um, it's worth talking about why, why this is a problem. Um, and in a lot of kind of technology departments, he, he refers to this term that featureitis is, is a common problem. And this is basically where designers and developers fall into this trap of, of wanting to create new features and new functionality all the time. Um, and the problem with that is, is that these features end up interfering with the core functionality. So the, the product might start as something that's relatively simple and, and users are able to do exactly the things they need to do very quickly. But over time, um, technology departments feel that they need to keep obviously adding more to the application and therefore making it more complex for the users um, which leads to them becoming more frustrated, they have more to learn, more to configure, and essentially there's more that can go wrong. Um, so we need to kind of get out of this, this feature-itis trap. Um, now, what Homer says is that the reason that we want to build these extra features quite, quite often is because it's, it's a way of competing, or it's, it's perceived to be a way of competing with, with um, similar products in the market. Um, and Alan Cooper, who is probably best known for have you heard of Alan Cooper the he's kind of best known for Visual Basic um some, yeah the he wrote the classic the inmates are running the he asylum did, yeah. which is a <laughs> classic yeah. Book, yeah and he's a he's a big guy on Twitter by the way oh is he yeah, yeah. I don't I don't follow him too much on there uh, well, I've actually got him here. Just that he wrote a funny tweet yesterday, which says, "Go to meeting is so silly. I click on it four minutes before my meeting. It asks me what I want to do. Start the meeting, dumb shit. <laughs> it, and then it asks which meeting. <laughs> so his Twitter feed is full of good stuff like that. But anyway, sorry. Yeah, no, he's he's a great guy, and he crops up in all the kind of usability user interface books. Um, he's a real US guru, and I think again he's in a similar vein to sort of Steve Krug and. And Hogman, but he's got a great analogy, a sort of quote for um, this idea that competing on features is is a good thing. And what he says is that trying to match competing products feature for feature is like running through a battlefield constantly under fire. You can run all you want, but you have to keep shooting to get anywhere. And I just I think it's such a great quote because it's just this idea that you can do that um, and it will get you so far, but the fact is that you're not really going to ever make any progress because you're constantly looking over your shoulder, you're constantly having to cover yourself to make sure you're keeping up with the competition. Um, and more worryingly, it's a really expensive strategy. You know, you're going to need a lot of investment, you're going to need like rockstar developers and, and constantly expanding your team to try and keep up with the demand of creating all these new features. And also not to mention the fact that you constantly have to support these new features and test them and so on. And so essentially what you end up doing is you, you fall behind the pack because you might you know, be ahead to begin with, but at some point you just, it just isn't sustainable. So to kind of counter this, what, what Hopeman says is there's some really simple things you can do. And one of them is that you need to drop nice to have features. Um, and I suspect everybody who's been involved in you know, a sort of tech, tech-based meeting will have heard the, uh, you know, a sentence that starts something like, it would be really nice if X. And when you hear that, it, the alarm bell should start ringing because basically what that means is that it's almost certainly a, a nice-to-have feature. Um, and this discussion is something I, as a sort of consultant, as a, as a freelancer, I come across all the time. You know, I, I build something for a client and, and the initial feedback is, yeah, that's really great, but it would be really nice if it did, you know, X, Y, Z. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's, it's funny, really, because they're kind of missing the point, you know. You might build something that does exactly what your users need and nothing more. But yet, the, you know, a lot of managers or a lot of um, you know, business development guys will say, well, we need a bit more. Or the marketing will say, we need a little bit more here because we need to wow people. Um, which is crazy. Um, it's actually, can, you know, it doesn't make any sense and it's, it's detrimental to your product. And again, mentioning the 37 Signals guys who I, I really like. Their quote on this is, stick to what is truly essential. Good ideas can be tabled. Take whatever you think your product should be product should be, and cut it in half. Pare down your features until you're left with only the essentials ones. Then do it again. Um, 
and I think you know I like this to, to kind of sum it up I, I like the idea of just you know make any features work incredibly hard to get into your application you know if you're just putting things in willy-nilly then you're you're going to end up with a with a cluttered and a, and a bloated application mm, yeah and there I think you mentioned in, in your post that their book getting real is actually free to read online it is yeah I think if you go to I, I double check I think if you literally go to getting real.37signals.com there's an online pdf version that you can read um, and similar to like don't make me think it's such an easy read it's like they, they just format it in a way where it just cuts through any kind of um, you know any kind of happy chat and it just goes straight to the point it's like it's almost like bullet points um, and mm. it's, it's a really interesting read yeah um, and so to going back to this sort of drop to nice uh, dropping nice to have features one thing you can also do is, if you get your feature list in front of you, um, you can use another simple technique described in the book, which is literally just called the 60-second deadline. And what this means is that you look at your list, and in 60 seconds, you um, cut out everything that isn't directly related to the core function of the application. And every time you find one of those, you tag it as a nice-to-have, and you move it aside. And you keep doing that until you've got, you know, you've reduced your list to you know, half or a third. Um, because that's how you cut out all, all the things that are going to interfere with the, you know, the core functionality. Um, Hogan talks about a, a principle that's used a lot in, um, it's cropped up a lot actually in the, in the books we've dis uh, discussed recently, which is Pareto principle. And again, in, in this instance, it's sort of the 80-20 rule, which basically speaking is that 80% of an application's usefulness comes from 20% of its features. So it's really interesting because if you look at it from another way, basically what that's saying is that you spend 20% of development on building 80% of the application. So it's actually, it's really dangerous if you, if you start getting into this battle of trying to create lots and lots of features and losing focus of, of the core um, functionality. And so what you really need to be doing is, is focusing or, or working out in, in the team what is that 20% that is going to be most important to 80% to of your users. And once you nail that, you can do it incredibly well and know that you're covering the majority of your user base. Yeah, and, the, and there's, some, there's so many more techniques now to, to figure out what is the 80-20, um, you know, what is the content there. You know, I think looking at web statistics, you'll always find yeah. that power law that um, most people are looking at just 20% of the content. It's just a few pages that are really drawing everybody in. The rest is just kind of noise, really. Uh, and how can you make those pages more accessible? How can you, um, you know, put them more up front or make sure users are guided to them sooner? If they're, if they're the pages that are more common and also uh, doing the user testing, you know, if you're testing enough and writing down some stats on what people are doing, you're going to have some good data that tells you, well, you know, 80% of the people are just doing 20% of the work in these areas. And you're going to learn that pretty quickly, mm. I think. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think this con this concept of less and more is, is almost overused these days, but it's, it is still so valuable. And I think that if you've always got that in the back of your mind, whenever you're building or designing something, it's going to really help you refine what you're doing. Mm. So those, those things you can obviously apply to, to making sure you're only building what's absolutely necessary. Um, in terms of some techniques to help you kind of reduce and refine things, um, there's this really cool term that he uses, um, which... Ever since I've read it, I've tried to apply it to pretty much everything I do. And um, this term is a Japanese term called Kaizen, which I think you've probably come across before. Yeah, continuous improvement. Yeah, absolutely. So it's roughly transfer translated into good change or improvement. Um, and it's it was initially coined as a sort of management process. Um, and you know, the best example today really is that it's used by big companies like Toyota and obviously a Japanese company. In, in their manufacture of cars and, it, and it's a way of kind of reducing defects as, as a car goes through the manufacturing process. And what Hope is saying is that you can apply, apply Kaizen to, to the design and development of, of applications. Um, and basically what that means is that instead of trying to do everything at once and create you know, the, the perfect product from, from day one, you take an incremental approach. So you create something that is good enough for now and then you continue building on that and continue incrementing that and, and improving it over time. Because in application and web application design and websites, it's, it's a 
you know, a fluid subject. It's always changing. So you're never going to get things perfect first time around. So there's even more emphasis on taking this kind of approach where you just continuously improve it over time, keep getting feedback, keep iterating. And in, in reality, it will probably never end. You know, you'll continuously smooth things over until your product, you know, is no, is no longer in use. Because if you don't do that, then you'll almost certainly fall behind the competition. Yeah, absolutely. And Steve Krug talks about um, how mobile kind of has made everybody adapt. And you're always going to have to adapt to these new changes all the mm. time. So and continually learning, you know, what's better. So, you know, for example, on mobile devices, you don't have a, a mouse hover over anymore. So all those conventions that you had for like 15 years of web applications, they're gone. You know, there's no mouse over. There's no, you can't easily do drop down menus. You can't do tool tips. You yeah. can't do hover over effects. So you've got to change everything and you've got to learn and, and adapt. Um, and, con- and, and I think it really comes down to it. You've got to test You've got to test, test, mm. test to learn what users are yeah, doing. Yeah, absolutely. So I really like that term. I think I think it's a great term that you can just apply to everything, and it's, it is something I try and use all the time. Um, another goal which for some, he has some techniques for is is you know helping users recover from mistakes and making it difficult for them to make in the first place. And again, another really cool cool um, technique he uses here is again it's a Japanese term called Pokayoke, which is spelled P-O-K-A-Y-O-K-E. Um, is, that, is that real? Or is that uh, no, it's real. And, and, and what it, in the blog post, I link to kind of details around it. But essentially what it means is mistake-proofing. Um, and so, believe it or not, there's, there's this, this kind of mistake-proofing is going on all around you all the time. If you look in like your bathroom or in your car, um, there's all sorts of mistake proofing taking place. So, for example, in your in your bathroom, the the overflow hole that you have in a sink, that is is a Poco Yoko device because what that's doing is that it's just covering you just in case you know you leave the tap on, you leave the room and don't come back. It stops it from overflowing. Um, another example is um, you know in your in your car. Not so, probably actually this is changing a bit now because not all cars actually put the keys in the ignition anymore, but. With, with older cars where you put the key in the ignition, you can't take that key out while you're driving the car because that would be a really bad thing. And so it's protecting mm. you from doing silly things. Um, and a kind of more a, a modern example, an online example, which uh, is, is really cool, is um, what Gmail does. And it's, it's a problem. I've, it's a mistake I've made so many times, which is where you go to send someone an email and in that email you're going to send them an attachment. So you say, hi, you know, John, here's the attachment we were talking about. Um, please see below. You send the email, and then two minutes later, you realise you get an email back uh, because you haven't yeah. you haven't added the attachment, and it's just like a stupid mistake. And what Gmail have done, which is a classic Pokeyoko device, is that they do a quick search of your text and they check whether there is the word attachment or um, please find the attachment. There's there's obviously a certain criteria to meet, and if you meet that criteria, it pops up and just says, "Oh, we found the word attachment." And you haven't actually attached one. Uh, you haven't actually included one in this email. Are you sure you want to send it now, or do you also want to add an attachment? Yeah, it's in- incredibly it, useful. I don't know why Microsoft have not included that in Android. <laughs> it's such an obvious feature. Yeah, and I mean, can you imagine how many thousands, millions of people make that mistake every day? Um, yeah, it's and you know it's kind of trivial, really. But I, th- I think that's such a great example. Um, and so, you know, apply these things to to what you're doing. And and I don't want to go into like specific examples in terms of web applications because I think it probably gets a bit too technical but I think that the term in itself is, is really important um, and then I think that the final thing just to, to briefly mention on is uh, how we kind of turn users into intermediate users quickly um, so again just to, to recap this idea that because most people are using software for a reason um, we need to get them up and running very quickly um, and so we need to get them to an intermediate stage, stage as quickly as possible so that they can do the job they need to do and move on. And there's a couple of things you can do to help with that. One of the, one of the really big, big ones is dealing with that initial, what, what um, is called blank slate or um, the, the sort of blank screen. And, and all web applications have this when you're a new user. And basically that's because there is no data in the system. So you land, you've, you've signed up, you start using this application and there's no data in there for you to work with. So really bad applications will literally just show you a blank screen and not really guide you towards what you, what you're supposed to do next. They might even give you some kind of like help or instruct you know go and read the instruction manual type thing, which is which is really bad. Whereas really good applications will 
structure the, the blank slate in a way that guides you towards the goals that you need to meet in order to get up and running. So LinkedIn is a really good example. Anyone who's signed up for a LinkedIn profile will, will know what I mean because when you first sign up, it gives you a blank slate, but then it gives you kind of like a breakdown of the different stages and the different pieces that you need to complete in order to finish building your profile. And it helps you and guides you towards doing things that will make it better and, and improve it. Um, and it'll tell you your progress, which you know, it's going to be so much more powerful than just leaving it completely empty. Um, mm. I, I feel like we've come such a long way in the last couple of years, really. Uh, any new kind of um, startup web application is following these kind of best practices. I think you, you don't see it so much anymore like you used to. Um, when you just think about like Facebook, for example, I mean, user adoption is critical to these people. Getting as many people on the system as possible mm. is, is, the, is the end goal. Yeah. Really. So making sure that they have a really comfortable experience from day one. And yeah, I think even when you first use Facebook now, it guides you through all the core features and what you can do yeah. and helps you to upload a picture and stuff. So yeah. Yeah, no, it's powerful stuff. Um, so I think really just to sort of conclude, because as I said, the book is is geared towards kind of user interface guys, designers, developers. And so it's not really for everyone to read. I mean, it's interesting to me because that's what I kind of do. But I wouldn't I wouldn't say to everyone, yeah, it's, it's a must read. It's very different from Don't Make Me Think in that respect because I think that you could pick up Don't Make Me Think, make me think even if you were, you know, non-technical and, and not particularly interested in that stuff. You would get a lot from it. Whereas this book, it is geared towards... Uh, having an understanding of, of web applications and what they do, but that doesn't mean there's not some key principles that you know you could use anywhere, such as you know the eighty twenty principle, um, this practicing kaizen, and then the Pokoyoka devices. Um, so it's it's got some cool stuff in, um, and that's about it, I think. What? Well, so just a quick question. So you mentioned getting real from thirty seven signals. Mm -hmm. um, for somebody that's involved in software development in one way or another, would you, if they could only read one of these books, 37 Signals 1 or this this one, uh, which one would you recommend most? I would almost certainly say um, the 37 Signals book, Getting Real. Um, yeah. the, the one thing I would say is that kind of is focused a bit more on a startup mentality. So it's like there is a certain amount of kind of soft metrics outside of, you know, designing and building an application, whereas this is purely about designing and building web applications. And so it, it's more of a rounded book in a way, I think, the Getting Real, the, the Getting Real book. Hmm. Fair enough. All right, well, I think that's it for this uh, episode on usability and design. So in the next episode, we're going to be looking at leadership and strategy. Uh, quite a different, uh, <laughs> a different ball game to this week. So looking forward to yeah, it. Absolutely. We'll speak then. Good stuff. Cheers. Thanks a lot for listening. Check out PlugTheVoid.com for more book reviews and discussion, and we'd love to get your feedback and suggestions for other great books to review. PlugTheVoid.com.